All right, so Colossians is where we are this morning. But before we get into Colossians, and because we're talking about not just marriage, but a lot of different relationships, what I've titled this morning's sermon is Fellows. So Paul brings up this term, my fellow servant, my fellow minister, my fellow prisoner. So this is where I've, I've come up with the title. But the idea of fellows and this word, it comes from, the Greek word is the idea of being together, being united. And when we look in life, we're not independent, right? We are doing life with human beings. And as Paul is moving the subject in his encouragement to the Colossian church, he's going to start talking about the human beings that we spend the most amount of time with, our spouses, our children, the second most amount of time, our employees or employers, depending on the case. So as we start talking about our relationships with one another, we want to make sure that we have as a foundation what the Word of God says in regards to these relationships, especially marriage. So... The book of Genesis communicates to us God's revelation that there is an almighty being that is outside of creation that has created the heavens and the earth. This is the narrative of the word of God. Our only other option that we are presented with in life is randomness and chance and evolution. When you really push into the evolution conversation, that's the the science that they sit in and the philosophy that they sit in, when you really push somebody in regards to what we know about the human genetic code and those kinds of things, most of them, when they were honest, they will claim that human beings, they're on this planet because they've been seeded here. You sit in the movies and they're, they're, this, is, this is not, I'm not being a wingnut here. This is a lot of people's legitimate understandings of how human beings came to be on this planet is that aliens put us here. Again, so these, these are the only two options that we have. You're either created or you're just random chance. If you're created, you're created according to the narrative that we have and the testimony that this is true is that God's son rose again from the grave That is the singular testimony that points to the veracity of the rest of the narrative that we have. The only other option is that you are just a naked ape and you're just an animal. So seriously, I mean, when you sit in relationships, you sit in human psychology, scientific answers to who we are as men and women, male and female, you're nothing but an animal. And that's So don't be surprised when the person next to you acts like an animal. And that's not the narrative that we have from the Bible. The Bible's narrative is God intentionally created human beings, man, male and female in his image, right? This is intentional on purpose. When he created Adam, Genesis tells us God said everything was good except the singular condition that Adam being alone was not good. And the revelation that we have from God is that he took from Adam's side a bone. He took out of Adam, out of the one that he created, and created for him a helper, somebody who was comparable to him, gave him her as wife, him as husband, but male and female in unity, completing that image of God together. And then God said everything is good. 
So that's the foundation of the relationship that we have as spouses. God didn't take a foot bone and create Eve out of Adam's foot bone so Adam could reign over her. He didn't take a head bone and make Eve so that Eve would rule over Adam. He took a side bone, comparable, compatible, in relationship, in the roles ordained by God. But what happened in the garden? What's the narrative that we have? What's the revelation? Sin entered in. When you sit in the consequences of sin, God's words to Eve in regards to the consequence is your desire is going to be for your husband, but he is going to rule over you. Now, this, is, this, is, this becomes like uncomfortable subject matter, especially in our culture. Genesis chapter 4, as God is communicating to Cain in regards to his sin and in regards to his anger, he says the exact same words to Cain. Cain's sin, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So our application is you women, you wives, you're like sin to us. You're trying to rule over us, but we're supposed to rule over you. That's awkward, isn't it? So as we're going to get into, again, even in, even in the rest of Genesis, you have these, the family relationships. You have siblings. You have Cain killing Abel and that dynamic. You have out of Cain's descendants, you have Lamech who takes two wives and distorts that family imagery even more. In Genesis chapter 5, in Genesis 1, we're told that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 5, we're told that when Adam and Eve had a son, Seth was created in their image, their broken image. And you watch death reign through that narrative in Genesis chapter 5. And then as the, in Genesis chapter 6, you have the, as human beings progressed in relationships together, what grew? Sin grew. Violence grew. Hatred grew. You watch men were physically dominant, right? So you can see the effects of being physically dominant over, over females and all the repercussions that that has had in human society since the very beginning. God judged that violence and that wickedness in the flood. And in Genesis 10, we have again this, this propagation of the nations. We have the division of those nations. And in that division, you have divisions of languages. You have the development of culture and all of these differences that we really do sit in as human beings. You can look around this room right now. There are relationships. There's marriages that have very different cultural backgrounds than you have. So when we talk about, when we talk about marriage, we have biblical foundations that are revealed, that are truths, that are not movable. But then we have a lot of cultural implications, things that you learned. How did you learn how to be a man or a woman? You learned about those characteristics in your household. Whether that household had mom and dad, or just mom, maybe grandma, maybe you were adopted. There's all different kinds of family dynamics that we grew up in, that this is where you learned what a marriage looks like. How your, how those, uh, for me, how my mom and dad interacted with one another, how they communicated, how they showed love or didn't show love. All those different things, those ideas, they, they take root in us and form our ideas as we enter into those relationships. Our pictures in the Bible, we have a lot of brokenness 
within the family structure. And we have God standing in that brokenness, healing scars, healing, well, healing the wounds that form into scars. We see people who were successful in those relationships. We see people who failed in those relationships. As we start getting back to, like, all that as a foundation as we enter back into Colossians, Paul is, again, he's writing from prison. He has been arrested because he's been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles. As he's in this circumstance, he's, he has this relationship with this guy, Epaphras, who has told him about the church in this community. And we're going to see that because of a specific relationship, this is the catalyst and the reason why Paul is writing this letter to encourage the Colossians to begin with. But as he's encouraging the Colossians, I've kept bringing up, he is elevating Jesus to the position where he belongs. He is above everything. He has created everything. By him, everything exists. Everything exists for him. He sustains everything. As we press into this truth and this narrative, and as you've responded to who he is in faith, he is the one that gets to identify you as creature. He created you through himself, for himself, by himself. We all recognize a brokenness within, a brokenness within the world. This is the reason why he has brought us to a relationship with him to restore us, and that is a process of restoration. As he has elevated Jesus to the proper position in our lives through a variety of conversations, he's entered into ideas that they're dealing with in their culture that Epaphras would have communicated to Paul. And now, last week, we sat in, here's all these, here's these attributes, here's these natural base characteristics of human beings that need to be cut off, that need to be executed out of our lives and hearts as we have a relationship with the God who created us. Here are these other attributes, these things that need to be taken off like we change clothes. Here's some of the old stuff that needs to be taken off. And then he's communicated, here's all these attributes that we need to be clothed in. And every single one of those is a description of Jesus Christ, his nature, his character, his heart, his, who he is as he has revealed himself to be in truth. And we were told last week that upon all of those garments, upon all of those attributes, attributes the dominant article of clothing in that, in that metaphor, in that imagery that we are to be clothed in is that of love. And husbands, we're going to be told that the, our, our primary instruction is to love our wives, and we're going to sit in that this morning. But we need all of that as background because now as Paul is talk, talking about as you as an individual believer in Jesus Christ and what you're to put off, what you're to be uh, put on, who you're to be clothed in, how you're to be clothed in, it's how you're to pursue those relationships. Now let's start talking about the nitty-gritty of our fellows, those who we are in life together with. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 is where we begin with the happy subject matter of wives, Submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So primary human relationship. Second, let's, let's say it's secondary. So first, 
relationship is your individual relationship with your creator independently. Yes? Your personal, private, public relationship with your creator is your first and primary relationship, period. The second most important relationship that we have is the relationship that he ordained, that of husband and wife. Now, one of the things that I want to point out here before we even begin, he is not talking about men and women. He is talking about husbands and wives. These are specific roles. So, ladies, if you do not want to submit, and we're going to give definition to this in a minute, to a future husband, don't get married. Because that's part of the role of being a wife. Husbands. If you do not want to love a woman according to the instructions of God's word, then don't get married. Because don't, don't take the vow and say, I do, I will, I commit, if this isn't the kind of husband that you want to be. Because if you choose not to press into the roles as God has defined them, then what's going to come about in your life? Disorder, pain, conflict. Been married 55 years, been married two and a half months. We all have conflict. I prayed for application of God's word in my life this week. I'm telling us to put away anger and malice last week. And what happened on Monday? I got angry at Julie. I let my anger well up and I yelled. And I had to have a cooling off period. And we had to have a subsequent conversation. We have a fabulous marriage. We've been married for 22 years. I love her. I adore her. I cherish her in every way. And sometimes I'm still a jerk. There's still conflict. There's still, we're still processing through our roles as husband and wife. And, and what that looks like and how that plays out in our seasons of change. And just the circumstances that come up in our life. But let's sit in the definition here, because submission is really easy to find. It's a military term, and it means to come under authority, to be in order under authority, to be subordinate. And again, when you sit in just the biblical definition of this word, the church is submitted to Christ. The universe is submitted to God. A slave is to be submitted to Master, A wife is to be submitted to husband. There, there is an order. There is a structure. There is, this is the attributes of God's creation. Now, easy to define, but, but how does this play out? What does that mean? And this is, if you sit in the culture that Paul is writing to, this is a community in the area of Asia, modern-day Turkey, this community has its own cultural roots. This community has been impacted by the Greek culture as Alexander the Great swept through and conquered, and the Greek culture dominated this area of the world. They have their ideas of family. And subsequently, the Roman Empire has now swept through and rules and reigns, and they have their definitions. In the Roman family, the husband had absolute authority. In the Roman family, wives were not told to submit. Wives were told to obey like children. The wives had absolutely no rights whatsoever. The husband had absolute reign and authority. We're going to get into servants and masters in a minute. 
when it comes to the idea of a slave in the Roman culture, an owner could not kill you and an owner could not maim you. Everything else is game. And this is, we're talking about a culture that we don't understand. For women in, the, in our culture today, as we talk about relationships as, as spouses, to me, the idea that a woman could not vote is insanity to me. It makes no sense. Yet, for women in our culture to vote, this is something that was fought for. This is something that, you know, was violently opposed and violently supported. Like the right that women have just to vote is, as citizens within our culture is a right that was fought for. The culture that I've grown up in, I just take that for granted, like, duh. So when we're talking about these roles of marriages, and this is what I communicated earlier, like we're sitting in different cultures, even in the room this morning, that what you learn the role of a woman in a marriage has very specific cultural attributes that were learned. Some of them sinful, some of them not, just different. Others, the same thing with men. Our definition of what it means to be a man in, in 2021 in the United States of America is being radically defined in so many ways. Like, I need to apologize for being created as a man because I have testosterone, and that testosterone, look at all the evil sin. No, it hasn't come out of testosterone. It's come out of a wicked heart of humanity that needs to be submitted to Christ, right? So in Ephesians 21, there's a, there's, Paul's giving the same kind of teaching. Here's what it looks like to walk in love in your relationship in Jesus. Here's what it looks like to walk in his light. Here's what it's like to walk in his wisdom. And Ephesians 5.21 gives this idea that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. Paul's already talked about in this, there's not, no longer Jew or Gentile. In Galatians, I told you there's no longer male or female. There's no longer all these human distinctions. We are all one in Jesus Christ. So there's truth in that, absolutely, that we are one in Christ. Yet at the same time, we still sit in a variety of very real roles that we need to fulfill in society, in family, and that primary role is that of husband and wife. And we allow the word of God to define this relationship. But when we get back to this idea of submission, so ladies, and not just ladies, wives, what does it look like for you to express, demonstrate, and live out being under the authority of your spouse, of your husband. How that works out between Julie and I, I guarantee it's different than how it works out in your household. I have very specific skills that I excel in. I have very specific weaknesses that I am terrible in. And my wife, as I walk alongside of Julie, we complement one another. So there are certain roles in, in our household dynamics where I ought not to be doing that because she is more gifted in that than I am. And that may be absolutely flipped in your marriage, and it might not image what our culture tells us that those roles need to look like.
So even within the body of Christ, within the church, we can be given definitions of what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a child, that really they're all based in our culture, what our culture has communicated, how we've been raised in our own families, that really they're, they're areas of freedom, but they may not specifically be that umbrella that applies to your household. The word of God is very clear for a wife in that role. There is a very, very clear call to submission. But submission, a lot of the, a lot of the pictures that are given in the commentaries, I think are terrible. So one of them, for instance, gives this idea because it's a military term. So the husband is like the general and the wife is like a private. What's wrong with that image? Doesn't that create a pretty stark contrast between the husband gets the authority of a four-star general and the wife's just this lowly little private. She has no opinion. She just does what she's told. Is that what the word of God communicates? No. No. So what, but what does submission look like? We can bring it in, bring it into like our, our business culture. The husband acts like the CEO and the chairman of the board of the household and the wife acts like the secretary, the assistant. She just takes notes and she makes sure my laundry is done and she makes sure my schedule is in order and that's all that she exists for. Guys, any of you know a, a relationship that works that way? And is that, is that a sin? That may work really well for a specific couple. That doesn't work well in my household. I'm a very strong-willed individual. My wife is a very strong-willed individual. And in her role, as she said, I do to me, she took on that role underneath the authority of God, underneath the authority of Jesus Christ, that she is going to choose to submit to me. How that plays out doesn't mean that she's mute, doesn't mean that she doesn't offer her opinion, doesn't mean that she's not uh, more skilled in certain ways. As we have processed down this road for the last 22 years, we've settled into what we're good at, what we're not good at, what we like, what we don't like. And even as we've processed through this, we still have conflicts. We still need to have conversations. But I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no doubt that my wife has this attitude towards me and a demonstration in her thoughts and in her behaviors that she is deferring to me to lead the household in all areas in conversation with her. So if there's something that we disagree on in her relationship with me and her relationship with the Lord, she'll defer to my decision. And who gets the freedom in that? I think she gets the freedom because the weight's on me. Because what if I'm making the wrong decision? Does anybody enjoy being the leader? Like seriously, just by personality, who likes to lead? Who just leads by, by nature? I'm not, I don't lead by um, default in my personality. I do not like telling people what to do. My wife loves telling people what to do. Just go ask her. She's really administrative. She's really good at it. She does it kind. You know why I don't like telling people what to do? Because when I feel like I tell you to do something, I feel like that general, like I'm, Linda, take out the trash. In my, in my heart, not Linda. 
in my, in, my, in my mind, in my personality, I'm saying, I'm saying hey, Linda, can you, t- can you please take out the trash? Like, I'm really kind on the inside, but my face communicates something. I'm just, every time I feel like I have to be assertive in something, I come across as a jerk. And it's often, when I have to be assertive, I gotta come back and apologize. And for those of you who've interacted with my personality, if I've ever asked you to do something before, it probably felt more like, Blake woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I feel really gentle on the inside. It just doesn't come out that way. God help me. <clears throat> Some of you press into that, that, uh, that leading role very naturally. When you sit in, again, this communication of roles as husband and wife, yes, there is an order and a structure that's been communicated by God. And for you wives, you need to press in in prayer and in diligence to what God has called you to do in communication and relationship with God and with your spouse. But now to the husbands, like who is the weight upon? Husbands, you're supposed to love your wives. In Ephesians, Paul continues this conversation that the example that we have is just as Jesus loved the church, which is sacrificially. This word for love, this is the word agape in the Greek. So as a verb, it's emphasis upon me as a husband. Blake, here's the role that the almighty God has given to you. You are to put the needs of your bride be above your own. Well, wait a minute, I thought I was the boss and she's supposed to serve all of my needs and she's supposed to submit to me. But li- listen to the language. Husbands, love your wife. Put her needs above your own as you're thinking about your hobbies, as you're thinking about your work, as you're thinking about your relationship with her, with your children, with church. We make all these decisions every single day, and to love my wife means that every decision I make, I need to elevate her needs above my own. This is what sacrificial love looks like. In a marriage between husband and wife, there is no me. There's no you. It's us. I am not allowed at all to make a decision independent of my bride. She is not allowed to make a decision independent of me. By saying I do and to become husband and wife, the Bible gives us this teaching. You have left the household of mother and father and you have become one with another human being. And that oneness is the image of God. You were to image God to one another. God help us in all of this. But in the decisions, I, my, in my study of the word of God, and my teaching up here right now, and those tasks that I need to perform throughout the rest of the day, as I go to work tomorrow, as I interact with my children, as I interact with you, as I interact with the culture, I need to be in an ongoing conversation with the Lord in regards to the decisions that I'm making, how they impact. You okay with that? I'm, I'm okay with that. I want to make her happy. I want her to be successful. I don't want to. I don't want to have conflict, and I don't want to wound her. I don't want to do things that cause her to distrust me. So, women, if 
a husband, if your husband is loving you this way, and husbands, if your wife is submitting to you in this way, how much peace and harmony do you have in your relationship? It's beautiful because it's what God come back and apologize and there's forgiveness there and there's growth there and there's moving on there. But the last thing that I want to do is give my wife any more wounds sourced from me. Does that make sense? I've wounded my wife with my mouth before. And that's not, that's not good and it's not pleasant. Um, I've wounded the Lord with my mouth before. And I go to the Lord in confession. When I, when I ponder on my historical sins, God, I'm so grateful for your forgiveness and your transformation. Keep me from that again, because I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to do that to my bride. So in this passage, as Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's got two sentences for spouses. Wives, is submission the only word that defines you as a wife? Absolutely not. There's all kinds of words that define who you are as a woman created in the image of God, appointed to the role of wife, and what that means. There is, there is a volume of definition of his identification of you. Men, there's a lot more to our role as husband than love and avoiding bitterness. There's protection. There's provision. There's all kinds of, of ideas that flow out of God's identity in me, defining me as a man, not letting my culture define me as what a man is. So we can pursue into those conversations. Again, this gets back into the question and answers. Do you have questions about this? For a lot of you in your marriages, there's, there's, um, there's subject matters that you need to press into as husband and wife that go beyond those two sentences that we just read into. Some of you, you need to have an ongoing conversation. Some of you, you may need to have a mediator in that conversation. Young marriage, you've only been married for two and a half months. You're just getting to know each other. Oh, my goodness. That's what you look like when you wake up? <laughs> right? There, every, everything's new. Been married for 55 years. You've got each other figured out in so many different ways. And then every time you turn around, it's, that's what you like? <laughs> it's a process. I just, this is what I do know by testimony. I have had, from, from the moment I met Julie, I've had somebody who has loved me and supported me and encouraged me and fought for me, and it, it feels wonderful to be loved. And any time when I respond in any kind of the flesh towards my wife, I, really, I just crumple on the inside because I sit in all the benefits just in what it has to do with me, right? And, and the benefits that she has had in my life, day in and day out, it's, it is overwhelmingly wow. Just, just, in, just in a Sunday morning, what my wife consistently does in serving this congregation so that I can do what I can do, she sits in, in gaps that she doesn't feel... Um, 
Like this is her primary equipping and calling, but she stands in that as support to me. How can I not love her abundantly? How dare I have any sense of bitterness to my wife? Those thoughts are of Satan. Those thoughts are of my flesh, and they have nothing to do with the reality of the character that that woman has in the Lord. I love her tremendously. Children, anybody a kid? Obey your parents. Why? That's what God tells you to do, and that's what I tell you to do. Obey. And again, think about this is a child when, for those of you who are parents, we need to provide constant instruction for our children. And that's what this idea of obey is. Follow the instructions of mom and dad. If we sit in our role as mother and father according to God's design... We are there to provide instructions for our children. They're going to prevent them from all of these different hardships in life, prevent them from death, which so often that's our role as parents is not, you know, saving our children from killing themselves. Um, But we are equipping them to have a relationship with their creator and equipping them to be successful in life. And that looks one way when they're a toddler versus a, you know, a young child. It changes when they're teenagers. Young adults, we're sitting in this with our own kids. Um, as I married Julie, I left my mother and father, and I cleaved my bride, and we became our own household. But my parents are still parenting me to this day. There is a, I listen to them, I obey them, I honor them, I value them, I cherish them. I grew up in a home where I was nothing but loved. I was nothing but protected. I was nothing but provided for. My parents always demonstrated wonderful role models for mom and dad. And it makes it easy to submit to that, right? It makes it easy to obey somebody when you know that, they're, um, that they have your best interest in mind. Now, yet, I'm, rebellion and I'm rebellious and I'm stiff-necked and my dad tells me that the stove is hot. Is it really? Huh? I've had to do all those kinds of things. Well, yeah, I believe that you're telling me the truth, but you know what? I, I need to go... I need to experience that pain on my own so that it's ingrained in me. And I've had those kinds of life experiences too. But again, as a child in the order and structure of a family, children obey your parents. And now the conversation gets back to fathers. Moms, you you do parenting usually really well. Fathers, we do parenting pretty well. But our kids frustrate us. Your kids ever frustrate you? You ever want to frustrate them back? That's what this word provoke means. Fathers, don't provoke your children. And the idea is that in this provocation of children, you're going to bring about discouragement in their life. Why aren't you like so-and-so? Why can't you get the good grade? Why can't you figure this out? You dunce, you dolt. I don't know if anybody ever, like my parents didn't discourage me. My parents always encouraged me. I have great examples in this. But there's been multiple times, you know, my parents have lashed out at me in exasperation because I'm doing the same stupid thing over and over again. I've lashed out at my kids in exasperation trying to get their attention. How many times do I have to tell you to do this? Well, probably about 500 more times because we need these constant reminders as as we're growing. But this idea of provocation 
is that you're, that you're putting your child in a position that they're going to rise up to the challenge that you're presenting them in the sense of there is a way to love and to train a child, and every single child is different. Every single child needs to be parented in a different way. We need to pay attention to their personalities and their circumstances. Right? For those of you who have multiple children, there's, there's a different parenting style for each one. But the warning as a father and moms, you can sit in this too, is don't exasperate your kids in a way where they're going to stand up and challenge you. Because that's this idea of a provocation, of you're being poked and you're being prodded, and they're going to turn around and they're going to stand up to the challenge, raising up rebellion in their minds and their hearts against you. Again, every single conversation looks different. Our daughter, all we had to do was look at her and she'd crumple. The boys, they were spanked three or four times every single day before I even got home. It's paid off. Every personality is different, right? So fathers, and all the different ages of your children... Daniel's got a, a newborn. We're going to dedicate a newborn baby, Hannah, next week. My children are young adults. I'm still a child. I'm 45 years old. My parents are still parenting me and instructing me. And I seek to obey them and honor them. <laughs> We're not going to finish Colossians today. Anybody else want to say anything about marriage? <laughs> here's, the, here's, the, here's the emphasis as Paul is writing to this congregation. The emphasis is that here, as we communicate to other human beings, in the, in the body of Christ, we are here to encourage each other to, to grow and mature, experience Jesus, experience who God is personally. Keep him in that position where he belongs in your individual mind. Pursue him, honor him, cherish him. If you don't know how to define who the almighty God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, seek him. Seek that understanding. Get to know him. Have an ongoing devoted conversation with him moment by moment. For you, for you personally, what are those, what are those attributes of your personality that do not image God? Cut those things off. Take those things off. God help us in, in all of that. Cause us to be self-aware. Let me see myself through your eyes, God, and let, my, let me see myself through the eyes of the human being that I'm communicating. Like, what does my face look like? Am I, am I engaged? Am I smiling? Am I angry? You know, where I, am I in this, Lord? Give me this self-awareness. Help me to, be, to literally be clothed in the character of the new heart that you promise. Because I know what my old heart is like. I know it's hardness, I know it's rebellion, I know it's wickedness, I know the destruction that it can bring about in the lives of other human beings. So Lord, give me that new heart that's promised in the gospel, the new covenant. Give me a heart of flesh. Give me a heart that your word is written upon. Give me a heart that is fertile soil to produce your fruit, your kindness, your gentleness. Let me be clothed in all of your attributes. Let me examine those things one at a time. 
let those things be uh, a part of who you're developing, developing me to be every single day. And Lord, I, I hear it. I know that you love the world so much that you sent your only begotten son to die for the sins of humanity. You didn't step into my life to condemn me. You stepped into my life to save me. You speak encouragement into my life. You build me up continually. Let me be clothed in your compassion and your love and your tenderness and your grace. Let me be flooded with contentment and peace that only comes from you. And now out of that position with me and you, Jesus, with the Father, with the Spirit, let me love my wife. Not just... Be filled with the emotions and feelings. But let me truly love her. Let me see her. Let me see where she's failing, where she's fighting, where she needs help, where she needs encouragement. Let me communicate to her nothing but love and adoration and affection. Let me be that man that you've created me to be for her. For my children, for Trinity, for Asher, for Eli. Let me be the best dad. You know, on Father's Day when I get that ribbon or whatever, let me truly be that man of God that they need. Let me see my daughter. Let me see my sons. Let me listen Give to me that heart of Barnabas to be a son of encouragement. I don't want destruction for my children. I want them to be a castle on a hill, hedged in by the power of God. I want them shining brightly. I want them to be successful. Not in dad's definition of success. But I want, them, I want to help them be who they feel called to be in the Lord. Give me the wisdom I need to counsel them. May I always counsel them towards you and never away, Lord. Keep me free from my own processes that I think that I'm wise and that I'm smart in that's really counseling, you, counseling them away from God's will rather than counseling them towards Jesus. And that may look different depending on the child. And Lord, as I interact with my fellows, those people that I do life together with, give me that patience. Give me that tenderness. Give me that compassion. We'll, we'll get into this next week in these, in these other relationships as we finish Colossians next week. Heavenly Father, again, we love you tremendously. We're thankful for, for those of us who are married, Lord. Each one of us gives you thanks for our spouse. We ask you for forgiveness where we've missed. We ask you for forgiveness where we've been rebellious and stiff-necked and have continued in our flesh in ways that you tried to deal with us over, over time, Lord. We ask that you cleanse us from those faults. We ask that you create in us, Lord, a clean heart, a holy heart, a devoted heart. We ask that you enable us to love our spouses 
as you, as you call us to, Lord, every day. Help us to esteem them, to elevate them, to honor them, to protect them. To help them be successful in whatever success looks like, Lord, in that circumstance. We can only do this in, in your strength, Lord. We want to do this in your strength and our relationship with you. We see the beauty of all the promises that you've given to us in, in marriage, Lord. And we want the best. We want the beauty. We want to go through whatever the season looks like, Lord, whatever the trial looks like that's going to make me to be the man of God that Julie needs me to be. As a parent, Lord, we all see our weaknesses. We all want our children, Lord, to again, to be the best. Not in comparison to others, Lord, but have a flourishing relationship with you. To not play games in the world, Lord, but to, to truly find their life, their direction, their knowledge, their wisdom from you, their almighty God. So as parents, Lord, help us to be exactly who our children need us to be. His children, Lord, let us value whoever those parent figures are, whether it's mom and dad, might be grandma or grandpa. Whoever that parental figure is, Lord, let us, let us esteem them and value them and obey them. All of these things, Lord, these, these relationships that we have, they are in you, they are for you, they are by you, they are to image you. Where we're off, help us, Lord. And we ask that, again, that you would be the one who gives us the definition and your identity in these roles. And that all those falsehoods that the body of Christ can teach us, that the culture definitely tries to teach us, that all the falsehoods, Lord, that they'd fall away. As we turn to you in, in communion, Lord, we remember you, your sacrifice. We remember your promises, your cleansing. We remember the new covenant that you are the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. And you became a man subject to Joseph and Mary, subject to your father, obedient to the death of the cross, for the joy that was set before you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for giving us your life, Lord. And all of this prayer and all this conversation, Lord, I'm praying for myself. I don't want to give you lip service. but I want to be radically transformed by your power today and for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.